0: Hey, welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. And what we're going to try and do is hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. David, how are you? I'm good, Peter. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing, I think, okay. Although I have this cough, but uh, it's okay. Nothing, right?
1: If I were you, I would take care of this. I
0: just ruined a shirt. Anna Vaccino joins us. How are you doing,
2: Anna? Hi. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Sorry to hear about the cough.
1: (laughs) You sound good today. David, does everybody have a cough now because of COVID? There are three viruses that are competing (laughs) for our immune system right now. Wow. There's the seasonal flu, which came early, the COVID, which never leaves, and then there's RSV, the respiratory syncytial virus for you to stay. So on tonight's show, aside from that, which you
0: heard, you're already learning stuff. A vaccine that can make a tremendous difference when it comes to deaths from fentanyl and relapse prevention. That's huge because of all the fentanyl deaths. And I didn't realize,
2: man, how powerful fentanyl is. It's really bad. Super deadly. We're also going to be talking about how to broach having an STD to your date. Apparently a study came out people, the people are not talking The people need to be talking.
0: And how do you approach it to your doctor? In our This Just Happened segment, Dr. Kipper will tell us all about what happens when you run out of antibiotic choices. We have a family member who had an illness, and they said, we're going to try these different meds, but we're almost out. This is the last choice. And if it doesn't work, you go, oh, my gosh. So we're in that type of situation. We're certain illnesses now. We're running out of choices. So what oh are we going to do about that? That's pretty fascinating. And also, we have a caller in a Hey, What About Me segment that has major anxiety issues that are almost paralyzing. So we'll try and help that person too. But David, let's start off with the vaccine that can make a tremendous difference about the fentanyl thing. And as I said, I was blown away. I didn't realize, I knew it was strong, but 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. That's scary. That you can't even, I can't wrap my head around that.
1: It's so deadly that it only takes a tiny bit of fentanyl to kill you. It takes two milligrams, which if you line up two, Grains of rice, that's how much we're talking about, can kill you. Opiates are highly addictive. They are euphoric in their presence and, and what they do. And it's easy to get these counterfeit drugs into a lot of other drugs. They're putting them into all other kinds of street drugs. You'll see these are being put into meth and cocaine and other opiates and benzos. So it's easy to get this into the population.
0: So this vaccine, I'm curious, we have a blood-brain barrier that protects your brain because it's your your computer center for your whole body. Does this vaccine prevent it from crossing the blood-brain barrier, or does it prevent it from hitting a receptor?
1: Well, both, Peter. That's very smart. What happens is these receptors are in the brain, and the vaccine itself grabs hold of what's ingested as the fentanyl, and it keeps it out of the brain. It keeps it from getting through the blood-brain barrier, and the blood-brain barrier, once it's passed through, that's where the receptors are. The opiate receptor is a very interesting receptor, by the way. The opiate receptor is not one receptor. There are parts of the opiate receptors that do different things. This is one of the things that we use in some of these treatments, specifically buprenorphine. There's a part of a receptor of, on the opiate family that triggers euphoria. There's a receptor in the opiate family that triggers analgesia, pain relief. There's another part that is for anxiety. And there's another part that's for craving. So there are different kinds of behaviors and effects that are all within the opiate family. So for instance, you have buprenorphine, which is a drug that's been around now 20 years. And it's, it's a one of the treatments for opiate use disorder. And what this drug does is that it tickles the receptor that is anti-anxiety a little bit for the analgesia receptor, but it blocks the receptor for euphoria and for craving. So it is called a an agonist and Antagonist. It's a partial agonist, partial antagonist. So it stimulates some of the opiate receptors and antagonizes some of the others. So the people taking this don't feel the need to keep taking it. The craving goes away, but they don't get euphoric from it. So there's no drive for that.
0: So is this out now? Is this available? And is it? This has been around,
1: Peter, for 20 years and it is affordable. But the
0: vaccine, so the vaccine is a new delivery system or new? The
1: vaccine for fentanyl, which I think is brilliant, is just entering human trials now. And it looks very promising. And this vaccine, if you think about how it works by grabbing the product and not allowing it to get into the central nervous system, they can start using this vaccine on other drugs. The technology of this vaccine might extend into other drugs. Also, it will eliminate some of the current treatments that we have, buprenorphine being one, methadone being another one, naltrexone being another one. Naltrexone is an interesting treatment in that naltrexone goes to the opiate receptors and it empties the receptor of all the opiates. So you see somebody that's in an opiate coma that is overdosed. You give them naltrexone. Right away, all the opiate that is on those receptors Comes off the receptors, and the person wakes up.
2: Where, where does it go? Is it metabolized by the body? Like, where does it go?
1: It's such a smart question. The problem is, it doesn't just go completely away. So that when the naltrexone wears off, which is usually minutes later, I mean, within oh. could be within ten minutes, it can be within twenty minutes. Then all that opiate that's sitting around and it goes back onto the receptor, and oh. the person goes back into a coma. So. Oh that, that particular treatment, they talk about giving people naltrexone. And a lot of people carry naltrexone if they have a family member or if they're a healthcare provider and they're going to run across this. But you can't just have one dose of naltrexone. You better have a supply of this. And this is wow. what happened. Well, David, I'm curious.
0: One of the shows we did on um, when we were doing the radio was with Danny DeVito about his father-in-law who had a stroke. And they gave the him a shot that reverses the stroke, that stops it.
1: Is it the same kind of behavior? No. What that was, that's the anti-clotting drug uh. called TPA. And what happens, somebody has a stroke, not from a hemorrhage, but from an actual clot. There are two kinds of strokes. God. One can be hemorrhagic where you bleed, and the other can be a, an obstructive from a clot. The clots are 80% of them and the hemorrhagics are 20%. If you give someone the TPA from a clotting stroke, it dissolves the clot. And then the blood flow starts to come back. This is a funny story, Anna, Lori, get a kick out of this. Danny's father-in-law has a stroke. It's a Sunday morning, it's early in the morning. The paramedics take him to the hospital. The family's all gathered, and he's totally compromised. He's out. And the family's sitting in the waiting room, and Danny and I are sitting over his father-in-law's gurney, and he's laying there. He's not contributing much to the conversation. And he had just had the injection of the clot-busting medicine. And (laughs) we're sitting there talking to each other, and out of nowhere... His father-in-law joins into the conversation about a <laughs> cute nurse that walked by. Hey, girl! And he like wakes up out of nowhere. So that's an amazing therapy, still used.
0: Wow! How soon after a stroke do you have to have that administered? What's the time? The window of opportunity for that?
1: We, we used to think it was within a couple hours. Now you're actually okay within probably twelve hours. Some people think twenty-four hours. Before. Whoa! What we're doing now is we're not just giving TPA. If we've established that it's an actual clot, we're combining the TPA with a procedure where you go in through a vessel and grab the clot, and you pull the clot out. So that's yeah. what we're doing now. We weren't doing that then, but that's what we're doing now.
0: So Danny, and Danny's father-in-law. Then how how long was the recovery? Or was it was that the, we went out and had a sandwich immediately, immediately after that?
1: That was good. He was revascularized. He left the hospital that afternoon. Amazing. Amazing. With the nurse.
2: And they lived happily ever after. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's hard to predict,
0: I'm sure, but if he had not had that paralysis for sure, or you don't know how devastating the stroke would be, correct?
1: Correct. It, it didn't look good for him if that didn't work. So do all hospitals, they all have? No, <laughs> you, you, you read my simple mind. There, there are stroke centers. And if you're having a stroke and you call the paramedics, they are designated to take you to some of oh. these specific oh. stroke centers. Most hospitals now, most big hospitals have their own stroke centers. Got it. But years ago, that wasn't the case
0: okay is a stroke (laughs) now we're doing stroke which we hadn't anticipated is it still i feel like i'm having a stroke smile and raise your hands and if half your face you got to make sure both sides are doing it that it's bilateral symmetry and it's is that the way to tell or is that old wives tale
1: if you're wondering whether someone had a stroke they probably didn't have a stroke because the symptoms are pretty clear they lose attention they do have trouble with their speech or they have motor dysfunction on one side but there's there's always enough evidence for you to call 911 got it and don't wait
2: okay so the next topic moving on is a feared topic of conversation on a date has been revealed and it, people aren't telling their dates that they're going to sleep with most likely that they have an std and people aren't talking about it at all they're not talking to their own doctor they're I what's going on with that? I, and by the way, I always called them STDs and now I'm hearing STIs, sexually transmitted infections is STD off the table. Yes.
1: I think it's a tomato. Tomorrow okay. I'm not canceled hear. for saying STD. No, I'm, I'm on your team okay. with the STDs. Okay, great.
0: Thank you. So how do you bring it up? How does somebody bring it up with their life partner, with a date,
1: with even with a doctor,
0: David, do people come walking in there and go, Hey, guess what doc?
2: It's burning. What do
0: I
1: do? I would guess for any of us on our panel or anyone listening, if you've been in that situation on a date and you're thinking, I'm speaking as a man and you're thinking, hmm, looks good here, that's probably not the first thing you're going to bring up. And I don't know, perhaps, Anna, you can fill us in on what that would be on the other side of the table if you're... I
2: mean, uh, listen, I've been married a really long time, so do you just like... As long as we wear a condom, nobody's going to get an STD, right? Or is that is that what everybody kind of assumes? And are condoms still effective? Is that still a thing? Or?
1: But not everybody wears a condom.
2: You're right. People don't I, use condoms. Hello.
1: And I read this article and it said that 75% of people are comfortable only speaking to their doctor. I must have the other 25% after all these years, because I unless I bring it up, it's rare that somebody will... Bring this issue up unless they come in with some fungating, ugly discharge, and that then they'll talk about it. But in general, people are not bringing this topic up.
0: So, David, the other question is: So, somebody has the guts to talk about an SDI? Have they made any advances in treatment? A, B, do most of them present? Do they come out only at certain time? You know, is it any change? Any changes with SDI since we were? Yeah, kids? exactly. <laughs> has it gotten any
2: better <laughs> since the nineties? I'd like to know.
1: What's improved or how we're treating these. And there is more dialogue about this because people are much more open about this. But speaking of how they present, this is an interesting question that I'll throw out. Assuming someone calls and they tell you that they have a discharge, and this is a way, by the way, to figure out what the problem is. Can you guys guess what a discharge might represent? In the family of STDs,
2: I mean, if you're talking about a woman, it could be forty different things, name one, vaginitis, vaginosis, um perfect. Uh, yeast, overgrowth, um, ovulating. yeast is not, could be yeast ovulating is not sexually I, well, I know, but it could be a number of things. that's all that's all I'm saying. With women, it's right. like
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> they're always absolutely. like, you know. so with a guy, thankfully, I've never had. So I don't know how it presents, but I'm getting, I mean, you've got chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis. It you sounds got horrifying. Herpes, I don't, but I don't know which one has a discharge.
1: Those all present with a discharge. And which don't present at all that are in your system that you wouldn't know without a test? The herpes. Herpes is a different presentation. Let's talk about what, what skin lesions do you see with specific warts, STDs? Herpes. Herpes is one. Warts, genital warts, good. Peter? I wish your name wasn't Pete. I just
0: wrote my wife. text to my wife. Let's forget dinner tonight is what I just
2: (laughs) Just, I will say, I feel like a lot of my younger friends, my younger millennial friends talk about herpes so much. And then I wonder, did I get married before everybody got herpes? Is that because it feels like herpes is discussed a lot. And it's almost like they're so like, yeah, yeah, herpes. I got herpes. I'm like, okay i mean that's great that i'm love that you talk about it and that you're open but is it not like so scary as it used to be because to me you know what i mean like it used to be like your life is over and
1: when i started practice if you had herpes that was a death sentence until aids came along and then people were happy to know they had herpes so herpes became a little less ominous less stigmatized that other virus showed up and
0: more manageable now
1: more manageable now Here's a question. Who do you think should be screened regularly for sexually transmitted diseases? My cousin Lewis.
2: His cousin Lewis. <laughs> I, I second that.
1: Pregnant women, always, because syphilis is now on the rise.
2: I was screened for everything when I was pregnant. They were very thorough. Yes. Because if you have a vaginal birth, can't you give the baby a, an STD?
1: Some of it you could give through your own blood exchange
0: hey. all right so that's the pregnant women and adolescents
1: two. adolescents that are okay. you know sexual sexually active and then high-risk group men having sex with men people that are having multiple partners so people that are at, at in the, high elderly, risk. In the elderly and, just to make it, them feel included <laughs>
2: they probably should be I, you
0: keep hearing those story you keep hearing those stories oh yeah well because partisanility, doesn't it david doesn't that affect also your sexual drive
1: There is a part of the brain that controls your sexual appetite. And I had a patient once who had a stroke in that area. And the only manifestation of this was a man who was, sex was never on this person's radar. And all of a sudden, this guy was chasing every woman he could find. And he was speaking overtly about sexual issues. It was such bizarre behavior for him. That's how we figured it out, that he must have had a stroke in this specific area of the brain. Well, let's move up.
0: Let's elevate the conversation and move up from the granular area. You know, this just happened segment. What happens when you run out of antibiotic choices, which is really scary? There are certain illnesses where you get some choices. And we're going to try this on you, that. you, know, And then you go, you know what? We're out and it appears that we're not developing new antibiotics because there's not a lot of funding but it looks like congress now if they can get their act together may approve 6 to 8 billion dollars to invest in research for new antibiotics but that's kind of a scary proposition isn't it david
1: it is you're talking about the past year act which is going to allocate 6 billion dollars a year for these drug companies to give them a little incentive to make more of these. It costs a lot of money to make a new drug, any drug. And the the return on these drugs has to match the investment. And so for antibiotics, there's not a great return on these drugs. It's a slow return. It's not like all of a sudden you have this big hit of one infection and then they get their money back. The last new antibiotic that was developed, I think, was 1984. And so ever since that drug, we're now getting derivatives of of older drugs. Do you you know where an antibiotic comes from? Lima, Peru. I have no idea. The dirt, the soil.
2: I was going to say it has to be something that kills bacteria, so it has to be something that's alive to kill the bacteria, right?
1: Yes, it comes from the bacteria and the fungi and the soil. If you took a scoop of dirt outside in your yard, there are millions of different bacterial colonies and fungal colonies that can, on their own, be converted into antibiotics. Hey, you know what? It's time for Hey, What About Me, where you
0: get a chance to ask Dr. Kipper a question. And we have a person who called in for Dr. Kipper who has major anxiety. Let's let's give a listen.
3: Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name is Jen. I had a question about seizures and panic attacks. I have had anxiety since I was 14. I have had panic attacks since I was 17. And I have been on Zoloft since I was 18. I'm now 41. My incredibly severe panic attacks seem to happen around doctor's offices. I went to get something done recently. And I actually passed out from the panic attack, which is not abnormal, but I then was told that I had a seizure and I've never had a seizure before in my life. I actually had the same thing happen again a couple weeks later, but I didn't pass out for this one. However, my body continued to seize in the moment. So I kind of got to see what I think the people around me were experiencing during the the panic attack that I did have a quote-unquote seizure. So to me, it wasn't a seizure. I don't know. What do you think? Is it possible? Did I have one? Is there something I should be looking for? Thanks for your help.
1: So Jen, first of all, panic attacks are the most severe form of our fight or flight reaction. So when we're scared, when something scares us, like a doctor, you're going to get a tremendous discharge of stress hormones, cortisol specifically. And that creates a rush of epinephrine, norepinephrine, or adrenaline, And these are the chemicals that make your body alert and ready to run. And so panic then extends into multiple symptoms, and they're all regulated by the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is designed to keep us calm when we're excited So now you have a system that's overloaded with excitatory chemicals. And one of the things that can happen is that you can induce a seizure, but more likely it's a muscular reaction that happens from this central nervous system reaction. It's not likely an actual seizure. So I'm not sure if it was really a seizure, especially one if you were awake through this. That's not a seizure. Seizures you're not conscious for when you're having them. So I don't think that those were true seizures, but the body does seize, and it seizes because of all the muscular contractions that you can have in a severe form. Panic attacks are most common in people that have serotonin imbalances. Those are people that have a high level of anxiety. It's just an extension of that. The Zoloft is designed to bump your serotonin levels so that you actually have less anxiety less likely to panic but there are triggers that make people extremely anxious one of them is going to the doctor and a specific issue which i see regularly in my office are people that come in to have their blood pressure checked they may be coming in for something totally different but we check their blood pressure and it's very high And then you talk to them about it and they say, well, you know, at home, I check it or at the pharmacy, I check and it's always normal. And they're right. It probably is normal. So a lot of things happen when you're scared. Your blood pressure goes up. Your pulse rate goes up. Your respiratory rate goes up. You're hyperventilating. You're blowing out carbon dioxide. So the chemical composition of your blood changes from its normal acid-base balance. That becomes imbalanced. Which creates more hyperventilation. You have people breathe into a paper bag when they're having a panic attack because they're blowing off so much carbon dioxide that their blood chemistry changes. You have them breathe into a paper bag, they're rebreathing their carbon dioxide and they get better. It takes a few minutes breathing in and out of this bag, but they feel better. So if you're seeing somebody having a panic attack, and you just so happen to have a bag nearby, they can also cup their hands and do the same thing. But these are all autonomic nervous system reactions to a biologic, natural biologic function that tells you you're being threatened.
2: I love Jen's voice, but I also love hearing everyone's voice. If you want to get your question answered, go to bedsidematters.org, fill out the form, send us a voice message. We'd love to hear your question, and Dr. Kipper might just answer yours on the air.
0: And I want to thank Anna for today and Dr. Kipper and producer Laurie and of course you. And if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, check us out at bedsidematters.org. And don't forget to check out uh, Dr. Kipper's book, Override. If you want to change bad habits and how your coping style can be impacted, you'll find out it's impacted by your brain chemistry. And also Anna's cookbooks, Eat Happy and Eat Happy 2, gluten-free, grain-free, low-carb recipes. And she's got great sauces that are out there at certain stores or go online. To check him out. It's a great website and Vocino, V O C I N O dot com.
2: If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can go to our website, bedsidematters.org, and leave a voicemail or submit a question. The information on bedside matters and the resources available for download are not intended as and should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.